0: This is The New Criterion. I'm James Pinero, executive editor with a special edition of the podcast. From The New Criterion Circle lecture, it is my pleasure to welcome our 2019 distinguished speaker and one of my favorite writers, Gary Saul Morrison. It's a pleasure to be here. Professor Morrison is the Lawrence B. Dumas Professor of the Arts and Humanities at Northwestern University. He has been writing for The New Criterion since 1998. Lenin Think! On the pernicious legacy of Vladimir Lenin, the title of tonight's lecture is our lead feature in October and Professor Morrison's 26th article for the magazine. Now, unlike Lenin's pernicious legacy, I should mention that the new criterion receives no state support. The magazine exists entirely through the underwriting of its readers, listeners, and viewers. The Circle of the New Criterion recognizes these supporters with a special annual lecture to which all are invited to attend, either in person or through our online broadcast. To learn more and to join our circle, please visit newcriterion.com circle. Professor Morrison, on Leninism, you write, What is new and uniquely horrible about the Soviets and their successors, is that they directed their fury at their own people. Well, what people would ever want such a system for themselves and to worship the man who created it? That is the question. Uh,
1: it was part of the ideology that one had to change human nature and one began at home. And the material was not what was favorable. It had all sorts of people from the wrong social class, the wrong attitudes, uh, they were unreliable, and you had to continually purge and change them if you wanted to make a new human nature. When you're trying to get rid of enemies abroad, you're not trying to transform them, you're just trying to get rid of them. Um, Of course, You get rid of a lot of your own people too, but the purpose is so that the remnant will be a saving remnant.
0: Well, here's another passage from your essay. Lenin worked by a principle of anti-empathy, and this approach was to define Soviet ethics. I know of no other society except those modeled on the one Lenin created, where school children were taught that mercy, kindness, and pity are vices. Now what's so interesting about your writing on the Soviet Union is how you show that Leninism was not just a revolution of the state, but an attempted revolution of the soul. Marxism-Leninism was a soul-denying experiment that turned into a death cult. How does such apocalyptic thinking have any legacy at all? Do you mean why
1: do other people like it? Well, I think there's something appealing about being in control of other human beings to the point where you can get to the bottom of their souls with fear or terror or inspiration and make them what you want. It's a power that simply ordering people around will not do. because That just controls their bodies. But this sort of power... Everybody who likes to boss people around to infiltrate their minds the way some teachers do, would appreciate this because it puts them in a unique position of power that probably is very, very rare in in human experience. That's the appeal of doing it. And the people who advocate it, um, of course, all expect to be the ones who are doing the transforming, not being the ones transformed. The shock is, of course, that they essentially all wind up as victims of it, as most Bolsheviks themselves did, not just other Marxists, but Bolsheviks too wound up. In fact, the secret police wound up as principal
0: victims of the secret police. So as you saw this happening, if you were living through this, how did it endure for so long? Um, Was it impossible to pull the plug?
1: Well, if you didn't even dare say the slightest thing to your neighbor because your neighbor was in trouble if he didn't instantly turn you in. One of the crimes defined by the state was non-denunciation. Uh, so you were too terrified even to say anything. But there was also the, the possibility that your neighbor might believe the ideology. After all, they never heard anything different. How Are you going to take the risk of doing that? It's impossible to formulate a conspiracy and. You know, against the regime in conditions like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Are we living in a Leninist moment today?
1: Uh, not yet, but I fear we're going to get there. Um, How so? Well, the idea of tolerating opinions other than your own seems to be not very well respected. Uh, I'm a university professor, so I see it all the time, but more generally, if someone disagrees with you, it must be because they're evil. Um, democracy depends on the notion of opinion, that other people just might be right. You have to have a strong sense of opinion for democracy to survive. Otherwise, you just suppress anything you disagree with. Um, I find it hard to imagine how democracy will survive um, when the notion of opinion wears away as it's doing so. And when it disappears, the kind of thinking that um, Lenin pioneered, which I see around me, even by people who haven't read him, um, will ensure that what replaces is not just some sort of benevolent dictatorship, but something truly horrible.
0: What we're seeing today, is it analogous to Leninism or a descent from Leninism?
1: I think it's both. Uh, the more insidious is the part that is a dissent. Uh, but what's interesting about Leninism is that you know, the objection. Well, surely you don't think most people who are intolerant are are Leninists. You don't think most social justice warriors are of that sort. And of course not. But the point, the whole point of Leninism, is that you don't need that to be the case. Only a small vanguard which is setting the tone, um, is necessary. Uh, Lenin, in fact, was opposed to a mass party, a mass movement. You can't control it. And there are enough that one can define a spectrum of people, you know, going from those who understand exactly what they're doing to those who are completely innocent and various modes in between, with more on the innocent end. But that doesn't change the danger.
0: You're a scholar of Russian literature, a great scholar. How did you come to this field of study?
1: Uh, Well, by accident would be a a good answer, and it's one of the reasons I've been so interested in the role of accident, chance, and contingency in history, because it happened to me. Um, When I was entering high school, I was going to take a... Placement test so I could go to second year French. And there was a blizzard that day, and so I arrived 40 minutes late to one hour exam and I flunked it. Now, today, of course, anyone would say that's not a fair test, let me take it. It didn't even occur to me to, to say that. So I could either repeat first year French or take whatever else was being offered that year, which happened to be Russian. This was shortly after Sputnik had gone up. And so I wound up taking Russian. No blizzard, I would have wound up doing something else. Uh, and there were actually a series of chances like that along the way. Um, now, of course, I had the, the chance been completely alien to my personality, it wouldn't have. You know, it wouldn't have worked. But if it hadn't happened, I easily could have wound up
0: doing something quite different. Is there a quality of mind that distinguishes Russian literature from other literatures?
1: Yes, there. There really is, and if you read the um writers and critics in the early 20th century when russian literature was first being translated it took it struck them immediately as something entirely different if you say virginia woolf has a wonderful essay called the russian point of view um she's not the only one it was more serious it was willing to address ultimate questions it to read it was not just to read literature, but to change your life. Um, to It made demands upon you. It, it was serious in a way that French, German, English literature was not. And also, it, it was psychologically more acute. There was nothing um, to match Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. And so that combination of psychological acuity and moral seriousness... Uh, and that does actually define very well the great russian prose tradition at least from the early 19th century right up you know through well through the end of the soviet period and beyond
0: so how could a people so well versed in the human condition go in for something so inhuman as leninism
1: i would ask the question and put it in the opposite way The reason that the great writers understood so much about the dangers of ideology and the attractiveness of it is that they saw it in action. The people... Lenin did not come out of nowhere. The people who... in whose tradition he was operating were around when Dostoevsky was writing. He saw them, he depicted them in his novels. Uh, He was probably the only person in the 19th century anywhere who foresaw what we call totalitarianism because those people were around and the same ideas that were eventually to take over were being discussed in the air. And Well, what if these people do get power? So I think of the the radical humanism and skepticism of the great writers as a reaction to the group that in Russia was called the intelligentsia, which meant not intellectuals, but... uh, People, radical, revolutionary materialists and atheists. In fact, you know, we get that word from Russian, and that's what it originally meant, the intelligentsia in the strict sense. Um, you had to be a materialist, an atheist, a revolutionary, so that no one would have thought of Tolstoy, let's say, as a member of the intelligentsia. Um, and thus, you can almost describe Russian, the history of Russian culture as the argument between the great writers and the intelligentsia. And in 1917, the intelligentsia seized power.
0: I was amused by your recent essay for the Wall Street Journal on the extremes of Russian bath culture, the banya. Are Russians gluttons for punishment, or does the banya help explain their endurance? Well, I think you'd probably have a lot of
1: Russians who would say that, they wouldn't use the phrase gluttons for punishment, but it would amount to that. Uh, They place a particular value on... Suffering, as if you know, life is not life unless you have suffered and suffered in the right way, in the way that Englishmen or American or Frenchmen would find very peculiar. Um, uh, it possibly comes from uh, the Russian religious tradition. Very interesting, you know, the, the first Russian saints, um, Saints Boris and Gleb, were canonized not because of anything they did, but because when their brother was out to kill them so that he could seize the throne rather than they, they simply let themselves be killed. They were, behaved passively in imitation of Christ, as they thought, not resisting. And it's their passivity, that made, their willingness to suffer without resisting, that says something that that becomes the defining
0: quality of sainthood in a tradition. Before we turn to tonight's lecture, I need to know, favorite Russian novel? Oh, that's so hard to say.
1: Uh, I can give you three favorites, but I can't give you one. How about three? Uh, two by Tolstoy, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, and Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. Those would be my... But I don't think I'm unique there. Again, if you read the you know English... French, German reception of uh, Russian literature in the early 20th century, those three would probably be their choice too. Some would add some Chekhov
0: to it, but of course he's not a novelist, but a playwright and story writer. Professor Morrison, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having
0: me.